You know, exercising, I think, is for the birds. <laughs> I am so sore in my commitment to being more yielded to the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Boy, that sentence doesn't even sound right. I've decided to reduce the size of my temple. Because, <laughs> uh, what do they say? Your temple, uh, your body is the temple of God? My, my temple's a little big. Alright, so... I've been considering doing this for a while. I live in a coastal town. And, uh, which means that we have the big blue wet thing not too far from our house, otherwise known as the Pacific Ocean. And it's wonderful because the big blue wet thing does a really great job of, of keeping the temperature in my town not so hot. I mean, if you go inland in Southern California during August and September, you got temperatures in the 90s and the 100s. Well, in, in my little coastal town... You know, you know it's a bad day if the temperature gets to like 80, 81. You know, everyone begins to complain bitterly about things. And so for years I've been watching people uh you know, they they have little boats that they put on their on the roofs of their call, cars and they're called kayaks and it looks so fun and so neat and and so I decided I'd get a kayak. And I love this little thing. It's cool. And so I've been uh, I've been kayaking in the ocean, and um, my arms and everything in my trunk of my body, you know, my chest and my abs and everything is on fire right now. And uh, and I, I just got this kayak, and of course, you know, if you're gonna do something, you you gotta overdo it. Yeah. <laughs> I've owned this thing less than 24 hours, and I've already been out on the water twice. Can you believe that? Yay. But uh, my, this it, well, what, hey, what would pirate Christian radio be without a little pirate ship? So we, we've got we've got the world's smallest pirate ship. It's a kayak. And uh, we, I haven't named it yet. The, the poor thing, you know, has been out on a few voyages so far, you know, fighting the pirates in the Dana Point Harbor. And uh, it doesn't have a name. And so I've, I've got a couple of ideas for a name. Uh, John, our production guy, says that I should, call, I should name it The Office. So that uh, when I tell people, hey, i got to go to The Office, they go, oh, okay, Chris is going to go to The Office. That's, you know, I thought that was clever. But uh, I'll throw this open to you guys. Um, if, <clears throat> tell you what, we'll even add a little something to it. Is we're in the process of having pirate Christian radio... Um, paraphernalia made like pirate Christian radio T-shirts and hats and stuff like that, and so we'll we'll have a little contest, and that is is that um, send in your um, name suggestions for naming uh, the pirate Christian radio kayak. Yeah, we got to give this thing a name, and uh, the name we pick, then what we'll do is we'll give you a pirate Christian radio T-shirt, as along with a pirate Christian radio hat to uh to you know to celebrate your victory and uh the hat and the and the t-shirt are probably about the same value as the kayak itself oh the color of the kayak yeah if you need to know the color of the kayak it's red it is a red kayak so um don't know what that signifies i'm thinking about putting some you know some you know black pirate stickers and stuff on it but it's official um i'm sore <laughs> 
you know, I thought I'd sleep well last night because, you know, I got so much exercise. No, I woke up in the middle of the night going, where's the Advil? <laughs> but, you know, what's funny is is that the guy who sold me the kayak, he, he promised me that this is a great way to lose weight. And, of course, you know, I probably won't get my money back. So if you see a little red kayak for sale on eBay, origin somewhere in coastal town in Southern California, you know what happened. But, uh, the, no, the guy promised me, he says this is a great way to lose weight, that he had a guy who about a year ago came in and bought a kayak, and he would he would go out on the water like three times a week and spend a couple hours out on the water. And um, within nine months, he lost 75 pounds. So, um, and, of course, then, he you know, he goes right into the legal speak. Results not typical. You know, <laughs> I'm kidding. He didn't do that. So I'm thinking, wow, you know, 75 pounds in nine months. You know, I'm pregnant with that idea. Uh, sorry, put on. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah. So that's uh, that's my latest accomplishment. We'll we'll see how this plays out between the kayaking and the walking five miles a night with my wife. Um, I don't think I've been this active since high school, but uh, it's just not a lot of fun hauling this large carcass around all these places so i'm kind of hoping the carcass gets smaller so that the exercise gets a little easier all right regarding yesterday's program we got a couple of emails and uh and a nasty gram we got a nasty gram nasty gram for mr roseboro nasty gram for mr roseboro apparently yeah no apparently chuck curry didn't like my review of his sermon can you believe that (laughs) so (laughs) What I thought we'd do is we'd go around that pole again, you know. <laughs> but he didn't like it the first time. Let's see if he likes it the second. Um, <laughs> geez. Okay, uh, here we go. Ben writes uh, uh, regarding the, uh, the, the must-see sermons <sighs> based on the latest movies, including such Christian tomes or Christian stories as Tropic Thunder. Ugh. Ben writes, he says, the only summer blockbuster not to be preached on is The Passion of the Christ. <laughs> oh, dude. <laughs> Ouch, that's bitter and so true. Good input, Ben. All right, um, got a new listener. Uh, Michael writes, he says, I've been listening to your program via podcast for the last week or two, and I heard you respond to many sermons and uh, sermons is in quote because a lot of the stuff that we review, you know, is, it, you have to use the loosest term, uh, the loosest definition of the word sermon in order for it to, uh, you know, to call it that. And he says, uh, I heard you respond to many sermons with the dogmatic statement that pastors should be preaching Christ and him crucified. Oh, I'm being dogmatic about the gospel. Uh, he says, is it your contention that pastors are only to preach on this subject? Maybe there's something that is lost in translation as I'm new to your program. Now, this is a good question. See, this is one of those things where, ha, ha, ha. All right. What's Roseboro up to? Uh, has he called me out? I mean, isn't it possible that when you're preaching through the Bible, if you begin at the beginning and you read about Adam and Eve, that you do a sermon on Adam and Eve, Right. You uh, jump ahead to Noah and the ark, and you do a sermon about Noah and the ark and the flood. And then you jump ahead to Abraham, and you preach about Abraham. You jump ahead to uh, uh, to Israel and, you know, the, the heel grabber guy, um, Jacob, and his sons. And then uh, Joseph in Egypt, you preach about those things, right? 
Well, see, here's here's the here's the funny thing, Michael, is I'm going to quote a couple of passages of scriptures to you, and don't think of it as 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 a dogmatic thing in the sense of I'm turning this into some kind of a new law. But instead, what I'd like you to consider is is that actually all of the scripture really is about Christ and Him crucified. If you've ever read the books, yeah, see, you don't even have to read these nowadays because the movies were pretty decent. But if you've ever read the book, the you know the books, the Lord of the Rings, you got the you know Fellowship of the Ring, the Two Towers, and the Return of the King. Um, really long books by J.R.R. Tolkien. And what happens is, if you know, it doesn't matter which part of the book, you know, which part of the series you're in. If you're at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring, and you've got uh, the hobbits trying to leave, uh, leave, you know, Bag's End, and you know, and head out with the Ringwraiths chasing them, that that part of the story serves to move the overall story forward. And the overall story of the Lord of the Rings is the destruction of the Rings and the establishment of a new kingdom, right? And so everything that precedes it is pointing towards that grand climax in the story. And the grand climax is really what the whole story is about. They are on a quest to do this, and these are the adventures they go along the way. The Bible's much the same way. There's an overarching story in all of Scripture. And the overarching story is of God's rescue and redemption of humanity. And uh, that takes place through Christ and Him crucified. So when we read about Adam, we read about Noah, we read about Israel, we read about Joseph, we read about David and the prophets. All of these stories, historical events, though, they are, this is not mythology, serve to move the bigger story forward or point to the bigger story, which is Christ and him crucified. And so um, it's possible with that understanding, regardless of what passage of scripture you're in, to tie everything back to Christ and him crucified. Now, so that you don't think I'm a complete nut. Um, uh, It's okay if you think I'm a partial nut, but, uh, you know, just as long as you don't think I'm a a total nut. Um, Let me quote the Apostle Paul to you. Paul, writing to the uh, church at Corinth. Now, Corinth, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Corinth was the Las Vegas of the ancient world. It was a port town. It was a rough port town, had a really nice brothel up on the Acre Corinth. And um, this was a place where sailors would get off their boats and they would uh, drag their boats from uh, over the Isthmus of Corinth from uh, Aegean Sea into, uh, I forget the name of the other one. But, um, you know, while they were waiting for their boat to be drug across this ramp, uh, you know, they would uh, <clears throat> engage in all the fun and revelry of being in a port town with other sailors. And, uh, and you know, so this was, the, this was really the Las Vegas of, uh, of the ancient world. And what was the relevant message that Paul brought to Las Vegas, Corinth? He says, uh, Acts, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or with wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. I chose to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. So uh, that's that's one passage that you can go to. Um, another great passage is um, is the is the story. It's not a story. It's the historical event when uh, Jesus was on the road to Emmaus. Um, and what happens is is um, this is set the story up for you. This is from Luke chapter twenty four. 
Um, Jesus has been crucified. He's just been raised from the dead. Uh, the women have uh, have uh, gone to the tomb and experienced the angel, saw the empty tomb. Peter and John went there, and, and they saw that the tomb was empty, and everyone's left scratching their heads going, what happened? Um, so two of Jesus' disciples in Luke chapter 24 are traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It's a day's journey. And uh, l- listen carefully to what happens in this story. We pick it up in verse 23 of chapter 24 of the Gospel of Luke. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, well, what things? And they said to him, well, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a man, who was a prophet, a mighty, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes. And besides this, It is now the third day since all these things have happened, and moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Now, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, this is Jesus speaking to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Here's the key one for you, Michael. Verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he opens up the scripture and shows them from beginning to end, from Moses and the prophets, all the things that were written about him. The scriptures really are about Christ. We have this really nasty habit because we're selfish, sinful, corrupt, bent in on ourselves, morally depraved, dead in our sins. Have I gotten through the whole list? No, that's just the that's just the starting point of how bad we are. We always think the story is about us. But ultimately, all of scripture from beginning to end is about Christ. So when a pastor preaches a sermon on a Sunday. One of the things he ought to be doing, and I'll put it in the ought, as he opens up the scriptures, is to point us to Christ, whether he's in the Old Testament or the New, whether he's in Moses, the prophets, or an epistle lesson or a gospel lesson. Christ will be found there. He can be found there. It will point you to Christ. So when I critique a sermon and I point out and ask the question, where is Christ? Where is Christ? Who is he preaching about? When a pastor's preaching about us and the things that we have to do and turning Christianity Christianity into a performance-based religion or pointing about us and how wonderful our lives are going to be if we just discover the right biblical principles, he's not preaching Christ, he's preaching you. And so I think that that's a problem. 
I think it's wrong. Or as my uh, mentor, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, used to say, it's putting the wrong emphasis on the improper syllable. Anyway, that's your answer to your question. I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> okay, we've got a lot of ground to cover. Um, we've got to get to the nasty gram, and then we're going to uh, we're going to go around the track again today. We I've got some great Elaine Pagel quotes, sound bites from Elaine Pagels because um, I you know uh, let me read uh, the Reverend Chuck Curry's nasty gram to me. And the, the, the occasion for the nasty gram was the uh, blistering sermon review that I gave him yesterday on the show. And uh, <clears throat> so uh, the Reverend Chuck Curry from Portland, Oregon, writes, I found your review of my sermon to lack scholarship. To be mocking in tone and filled with historical error. He didn't give me any examples of that. Yeah, it was mocking, though. Yeah, actually, uh, Chuck, you're right. It was mocking. And um, if you're not sure about why I'm doing that, uh, you might want to go back and re listen listen to some of our previous installments because I actually give a good apologetic in favor of mocking. I'm just following Jesus' example. It was a "What would Jesus do?" moment, and uh, and you know, and also, it's a great example from Elijah on Mount Carmel. Has your God? Is he relieving himself? You know, Elijah mocked the prophets of Baal. So, yeah, it was mocking. And uh, understand this, uh, Pastor Curry. It was mocking because what you were preaching was false, and I was mocking your false teaching. My hope for you is that you repent because you are in grave error, and you are teaching falsehood to the people who are listening to you and attending your church. So my prayer for you is repentance. But ultimately, my sermon review wasn't designed to uh, tickle your ears and make us want to have a hug, you know, one of those man bonding moments. Instead, it was designed to wake you up. It's a, designed to be a bucket of cold water and to serve as a warning to everybody else is because you're not the only guy out there teaching this heresy. So I want to make sure that other people understand why it's wrong and learn how to think biblically and critically. So, yeah, it was mocking. <clears throat> Guilty. All right, it says, your comment about other faiths were particularly arrogant and verged on being hateful. Well, if telling somebody the truth that their God is a false God and that their belief and trust in that God will end them up in hell is um, hateful, then I guess I'm hateful. But uh, from what I understand, telling somebody the truth and speaking the truth to them and warning them so that they don't end up in hell that's a very loving thing to do. You parrot some evangelical scholars. Uh-oh. He's using evangelical as a four-letter word. <laughs> you parrot some evangelical scholars inconsistently, and I suspect you wouldn't actually be able to name any of them. Oh, let's see. Ben Witherington, Tom Wright, uh, John Warwick Montgomery, Stott. You know, those guys? Oh, Rod Rosenblatt, Kim Riddlebarger. Yeah, I happen to know them. <laughs> oh, and I have a degree in religious studies and biblical languages. I don't know nothing. You're right. I'm a complete moron. 
All right, hang on a second here. It says, all right, though inconsistently, I suspect you wouldn't be able to name any of them, but for the most part, engage in proof texting. Yeah, I was proof texting. When I was actually opening up the scriptures and showing how the scriptures say, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. By the way, I got a great email from somebody. I've got to find, I've got to do a little more research on it. I wish I had time to finish this up. Um, the Hebrew there in uh, Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Um, a, a, good, a good alternative translation you shall have no other gods in my presence. You know, um, you, you've got in the Hebrew, you've got uh, God saying you shall have no other gods before my face. You know, in my you know, and before my face is speaking about in the presence of God. Great uh, translation, too. So uh, <clears throat> so I was just proof texting you know, because I started with the a priori that there's only one God and then proof texted it. No, no, Chuck, I didn't. I didn't proof text. I was exegeting the scriptures, and I was exegeting them correctly. The Israeli nation was called out of Egypt by the one true God and taught to worship God as the one true God. That's how he revealed himself, as the one true God. And all idols and all other religions are false and let me put it <clears throat> let me let me add some salt to this wound. Allah cannot hear your prayers because Allah does not exist. The teachings of the Buddha will land you up in hell. Shiva, Vishnu, those gods, they don't even exist. They're mythological. They do not exist. They cannot hear you, cannot help you, cannot respond to you. They are incapable, impotent, non existent, deaf, dumb, and blind. Have I made myself clear? That's what Scripture says, not Roseboro. Roseboro's is telling you what the Bible says. Okay, hang on a second here. <clears throat> All right. So I engage in proof texting. In the end, however, you were simply juvenile in your thinking. Really? Well, we're gonna we're gonna explore this topic a little bit more today to find out just how juvenile I am. And I hope that in time, God opens all of our hearts so that dialogue such as this no longer ex is, ex is no longer accepted practice among followers of Jesus. Well, Chuck, I guess he envisions that day when all we need is love. No, 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 no. So we got two topics on the table today. Because Chuck is, um, just in listening to him, it's very obvious, he's a, he's been influenced by the, <clears throat> quote, scholarship, and it is not scholarship, of Elaine Pagels. Elaine Pagels um, is a modern-day proponent of the Gospel of Thomas. And if you remember Chuck quoting in his sermon yesterday, go back and listen to it again. He made the claim that the Gospel of Thomas probably predates the, many of the Gospels. He puts it in the middle of the first century, you know, 50 A.D., and that uh, it's really the Gospel of Thomas that teaches us the true teachings of Jesus Christ. And uh, he was using that in the context of, uh, of defending this idea that there is more than one path to God. Well, um, yesterday I made the claim that... Uh, We've got some problems with the, gospel, the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas. Number one, is it true that the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas predates the Gospels and probably give us a more accurate picture of what Jesus actually taught, more so than the Gospel of John? 
I mean, his argument was is that the Gospel of John was written was written in the second century, a hundred years after Jesus Christ. That puts it in the second century, and it, and he challenged the Johannian authorship of the Gospel of John. So um, the question is, is, is this true? Should we be trusting the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas as being more authoritative than the Gospel of John? And w- w- what's the evidence for supporting this? You Christians really, really need to know this stuff. And so uh, we're going to spend probably the balance of the show today uh, picking through this stuff. Um, so we're going to ask a question. Okay. First of all, can we trust the Gospel of John? Right? Can we trust it? And um, here, here's the interesting thing. Okay. Um, did you know that uh, we've got a pretty darn good attestation that John is the author? The, the, the John, the beloved, the one who sat on the, who rested on the breast of Jesus. John, one of the sons of thunder, sons of Zebedee, the gospel writer, John. John. John had a, a disciple whose name was Polycarp. Okay, if you're familiar with Polycarp, um, just kind of watch how the succession, you know, how the foundation of the church was laid by the apostles, and then the next generation from there. So the the, the second generation Christians, you know, first generation being the apostles, second generation Christians, among them was a guy by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp was martyred for his faith, and he and he was uh, martyred when he was an elderly man. Uh, because he wouldn't deny Christ. And um, he, uh, in in the course of his lifetime as a Christian, had the, uh, had the opportunity to teach and influence a man by the name of Irenaeus. Irenaeus of Leon, as uh, Montgomery would say. And Irenaeus actually conveys information that he received from Polycarp regarding the authorship of the Gospel of John. Irenaeus, in his... Uh, I hope I'm not being too dry here. But this is good stuff. Irenaeus, uh, he wrote a book um, called Against Heresies in uh, Book 3, Chapter 1. Here's what Irenaeus writes. He, uh, he says, After their departure, Mark the disciple and interpreter of Peter did also hand down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. Luke also, the companion of Paul, recorded in a book the gospel preached by him. And afterwards, John, the disciple of the Lord, who had leaned on his breast, Jesus' breast, did himself publish a gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia. So according to Irenaeus, who was a disciple of Polycarp, and Polycarp, who was a disciple of the, the, um, the apostle John, says no later than 180 A.D., this, this, uh, his book was written uh, late in the 2nd century, that he records, basically, uh, that John is the author of the Gospel of John. And he says he wrote it while he was at Ephesus. Did you know that John was the first bishop of Ephesus? Tis true. Tis true. And uh, church history also tells us that uh, when he was in Ephesus, uh, a woman who accompanied him there was Mary, the mother of Jesus. Because why? Well, when Jesus was being crucified on the cross, he said to John, behold your mother, and to Mary, behold your son, and basically left the responsibility of caring for his mother to John. 
And we find from church history that John, when he traveled to Ephesus to continue to strengthen and preach the gospel to the church in, in Ephesus, you know, to the Christian community in Ephesus, that Mary accompanied him. And we learn from Irenaeus, who learned from Polycarp, that not only was John the author of the Gospel of John, but that he wrote it while he was at Ephesus. And actually, this bit of information is is really vital because we have attestation regarding the authorship, and we also can then kind of backwards engineer and figure out when the date was. This probably puts the Gospel of John you know, between 60 and 70 A.D., not very late at all. In other words, it was a first-century document. Now... <clears throat> something else I want to point out here, and I'm going to point this out for a for a secondary reason, is that when we look at the New Testament documents, okay, so there's all these conspiracy theorists out there saying that you know that somehow it was the Council of Nicaea and it was Constantine who who threw out all these other documents. And, 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 you know, we have all these other things that Jesus taught, but no, they were suppressed. Absolute poppycock. They were not suppressed. There was no, the, the, the Da Vinci Code and its conspiracy theories don't hold up to any scrutiny whatsoever. But this is interesting, is that did you know that by the year 212 AD, really at the beginning of the third century, by the beginning of the third century, that the entire New Testament, as we have it, is quoted and reproduced by all of the early Christian church fathers in their writings in its entirety, with the exception of 11 verses. Did you know that? You could, If we didn't even have a single copy of the New Testament, we could probably piece the entire thing together from the writings of Barnabas, Polycarp, Hermes, Clement of Rome, Ignatius, Arrhenius, Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, Tatian, Tertullian, we could reproduce the the entire New Testament from the writings of these early church fathers because they quoted from the New Testament documents extensively. And in quoting them extensively, they quoted them as authoritative, as the Word of God, and as apostolic. Did you know that uh, none of the early church fathers actually quote from the Gospel of Thomas? None of them. Not one. There is no reference to any early of any early Christian church father quoting from the gospel of Thomas as if it's authoritative. Now, if it was authoritative and it was early like 50 AD, then we would expect that the early church fathers would have been quoting from it. I don't know the 11 verses that are missing by the way. I'd have to look that up. I have it somewhere among somewhere in my library, but I'm not very scholarly. So, you know, John asked me what what were the uh, missing eleven verses. I actually can tell you if I go into my library and find the books and pull it out. You know that would be a great on a trivial pursuit question. Uh, anyway, so <clears throat> uh, <laughs> oh man. Um, anyway, uh, we're gonna go into our break and we'll be right back. If you would like to email me. Go ahead and tell me. Send me a nastygram. Please. Love the nastygrams. You can do so. Uh, talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. And we're going to be right back.
If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus schlock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn radio program including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, available exclusively at NewReformationPress.com, or the big-picture audio presentation Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com. Finally, Reformation Theology Made Accessible. Welcome back to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and uh, we're doing the unloving thing and actually claiming that the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas, um, its spiritual value is probably that of toilet paper. And I mean that in the most loving way. I mean, it's, historically, it's good to know what the Gnostics thought, but uh, it's not canonical, and it's not apostolic, and it's not early. As I was just pointing out that... Uh, just a little-known fact that you can actually reproduce the entire New Testament with the exception of 11 verses in the writings of the early church fathers all before 212 A.D. Those are the writings of Barnabas, Polycarp, Hermes, Clement of Rome, Ignatius, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Tatian, Clement of Alexandria, and Justin Martyr. But, of course, I'm not very scholarly, so don't listen to me. You know, it's not Sam I am. (laughs) Okay, I agree. So, there's a phone ringing in here. Is that our fax machine? Sorry, but hello? Hello? Who's there? (laughs) I didn't realize we had a fax machine in here. All right. Anyway, um, so the point I was making is is that uh, you can reproduce the entire New Testament from the writings of the early church fathers, even if we didn't even have a single full copy of the New Testament. You can reproduce the whole thing. And gasp, guess what? None of the early Christian church fathers quote the Gospel of Thomas as being authoritative. Not one. <clears throat> it gets worse, by the way, for the poor Gospel of Thomas. Um, we have a couple of copies of it, and the earliest copy we have is dated to about 200 A.D. But it's also important to note this, and that is that the, uh, the Gospel of Con- Th- Thomas... Um, is mentioned um, by Hippolytus, uh, and and uh, he wrote about it in his book uh, called Refutation of All Heresies. First time you see any of the early Christian church fathers quoting the Gospel of Thomas occurs somewhere probably about 220 A.D., 
220 A.D. So by 212 A.D., you can reproduce the entire New Testament with the exception of 11 verses in the writings of the early church fathers. And then you've got Hippolytus, about 220 A.D., uh, speaking rather poorly of the Gospel of Thomas. In his uh, refutation of all heresies, he talks about the Nasins, uh, uh, speaking of the nature which is both hidden and revealed at the same time, in which they called the forethought or kingdom of heaven, which is a human being. They transmit a tradition concerning this in the gospel entitled, according to Thomas, which states expressly that the one who seeks me will find me in the children of seven years and older for there, hidden, there, for there, hidden in the 14th aeon, I am revealed. Quoting from the Gospel of Thomas. So the first time we see an early Christian church father quoting the Gospel of Thomas isn't until 220, and gasp, get this, he doesn't quote it favorably. Hmm. Well, the reason why he doesn't is because it's not apostolic. The Gospel of Thomas is not early, it's late. It's late. Late second century at best it's nowhere no there's nothing nothing not one shred of evidence that you can point to that says that the thing was written in the first century and and it serves no um purpose there by the way um there's also some yesterday i quoted one really embarrassing piece from the gospel of thomas there's more um Remember, I was reading from the Gospel of Thomas yesterday. Uh, Gospel of Thomas, saying number 114. I wonder if this is one of those things that I, I, I was historically inaccurate about. Because he said I was historically inaccurate. Um, <clears throat> Gospel of Thomas, uh, number 114 says, Simon Peter said to Jesus, Let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, you know, uh, Pastor Curry, if you're going to quote the uh, Gospel of Thomas as authoritative, I mean, don't you think you should be consistent? You know, I want to hear some uh, sermons from you on Gospel of Thomas, number 114. Go ahead and let the women in your congregation know that they're not worthy of life unless they become a man. Um, here's another one. Gospel of Thomas saying number seven. Jesus said, Blessed is the lion who becomes man when consumed by man, and cursed is the man whom the lion consumes, and the lion becomes man. Huh? <clears throat> Maybe it's lost in translation. Oh, here's a good one. By the way, um, Pastor Curry, I would bet that you are probably one of those guys that wants to uh, solve the poverty problem and reach out to the poor and all that kind of stuff. Because you know, one of the things I've noticed about liberal uh, pastors and theologians is is that they seem to be obsessed with the social gospel, uh, which really kind of makes me wonder, how do you resolve this from the Gospel of Thomas? This is saying number 14 from the Gospel of Thomas. Jesus said to them, if you fast, you will give rise to sin for your, you yourselves. And if you pray, you will be condemned. And if you give alms, you will do harm to your spirits. When you go into any land and walk about in the districts, if they receive you, eat what they will set before you and heal the sick among you. For what goes into your mouth will not defile you, but that which issues from your mouth, it is that which defiles you. So Jesus says, if you give alms, then you're going to defile your spirit. 
So you don't don't fast, don't pray, and don't give alms. That's what the Gospel of Thomas teaches. Is this really what Jesus taught? Well, see, that's the thing. Not according to the eyewitnesses. So, um, without any further ado, because, you know, I'm not very scholarly at all. Um, I just happened, you know, because I'm not very scholarly uh, at all, some uh, some sound bites from Elaine Pagels just fell out of the sky into my lap because, you know, I'm not very scholarly. I never read anything. And, you know, I don't actually know what's going on. I'm just a fool. Um, I've got some great sound bites from Elaine Pagels, and I'd like to listen to them. And let's just do a little comparative work here. Are we ready? Here's Elaine Pagels talking about uh, the Gospel of Thomas. When, when it asks the question, who is Jesus, it, it suggests, as also does the Gospel of John, that he's a manifestation of the divine light that came into being in the beginning of time. So Elaine Pagels here is, is talking about the Gospel of Thomas and saying the Gospel of Thomas teaches that Jesus Christ, kind of like what the Gnostics and the mystics and the Eastern folks think, that uh, Jesus is somehow a poor part of the divine light, right? And the good news, or the gospel, is that so are you, right? That <laughs> uh, Really? That's what the Gospel of Thomas preaches? But that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not actually what the four Gospels teach. The Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the guys who are eyewitnesses, those who who the church knew spent three years with Jesus. That everyone comes from that same divine light. According to the Gospel of Thomas, Jesus teaches his disciples and says, if they say to you, who are you? Say, we come from the light, the place where the light came into being. And if they say, uh, you know, who is your father? Say, we are children of the light, children of the living father. So this is a teaching, a gospel about all beings, all humans coming from that divine light. Really? Well, you know, John has some things to say about that. And since we know that his gospel was written in the first century while he was at Ephesus and that he was an eyewitness um, to Jesus, um, wonder what he has to say about this. Uh, just you know, just wondering. Um, didn't Jesus say something about, you know, see, he didn't say that we were all part of the light. You know, that, like that poltergeist lady, come into the light. <laughs> um, that was a freaky lady. That was a scary movie, man. Gave me nightmares. Uh, <clears throat> Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk, walk in darkness, but have the light of light. Jesus doesn't say we all come from the light. Jesus says that I am the light. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus says, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the Father except for through me. Interesting. <clears throat> Elaine Pagels seems to, uh, you know, she's enamored with this whole Gnostic gospel of Thomas, despite the fact that the scholars have all proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's not early, it's not apostolic, and uh, none of the early Christian church fathers actually quote it. And it teaches a different thing about Jesus. And see, that's the point. You need to make a decision. Who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust Elaine Pagels and her really, really bad scholarship? Or are you going to trust those who were there, who knew, who said 
that the apostles are the ones who wrote the Gospels. And they were the eyewitnesses to the events recorded. Let's continue with Elaine Pagels. This text claims to be the secret teaching of Jesus, not the public teaching. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Y'all ever met a conspiracy theorist? You know, somebody who believes that, like, you know, black helicopters are circling and watching us and that the the U.S. government is using satellite and, and, and imaging, you know, heat imaging to figure out where, you know, where you are at all times. They can tell you how many people are in a building and, and they're listening in on your conversations and that it wasn't uh, Lee Harvey Oswald who assassinated John F. Kennedy, that it was the CIA and all that kind of stuff. You, 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 you've met people like this. So um, Elaine Pagels, in speaking about the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas, is telling us this was the secret teaching of Jesus, the secret teaching. See, that's why no one's quoting, because this is, this is for the initiated. Oh, yeah, and, and and see, and this this is the same type of thinking that gets you to believe that um, the United States actually didn't put astronauts on the moon, right? You know, twenty percent of Americans do not believe that the United States has put astronauts on the moon. Did you know that? Twenty percent. <sighs> anyway, so here. You know, this is the secret teachings of Jesus. And by the way, um, yeah, this, this is the stuff that Jesus didn't want you to know. Well, not exactly. According to the Gnostics, see, you're not saved by believing in Jesus. Even though Jesus says that, uh, um, let's see, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Despite the fact that that's in the Gospels, um, Gnostics believe that you're not saved by believing in Jesus. You're saved by getting this secret knowledge. So, uh, Reverend Curry, are you a Gnostic? Do you believe that you're saved by getting secret knowledge? Like the secret knowledge that women are not worthy of life? Like the secret knowledge that you uh, shouldn't pray or fast or give alms? Right? These are the secret teachings of Jesus. Let's go back. This text claims to be the secret teaching of Jesus, not the public teaching. Uh, the public teaching of Matthew and Mark and Luke is about following the injunctions of Jesus, you know, believing in Jesus and so forth. And this text claims to be for people who have gone to a different level. Oh. The secretly initiated, the deeper level, the not, those who have the gnosis. That's, this is called Gnosticism, arch enemy of Christianity, by the way, arch enemy of Christianity. One of the things that John did in writing the Gospel of John the way he did, he wrote it as a refutation of Gnostic teaching because the Gnostics didn't believe that Jesus actually came, into the, came in the flesh. They just believed that he was only spirit because flesh is evil. And if he truly was the Christ consciousness... Notice, that's a weird phrase. Stay away from it. It's New Age. Um, in order, if Jesus if Jesus was truly the, the embodiment of, of good, then he couldn't have had flesh. And so the Gospel of Thomas never speaks about believing in Jesus, except in one place where the disciples don't understand. But here the emphasis is not on belief at all. It's as though after you first come to this movement with belief, you have to let go of that and find some kind of 
deeper understanding. Oh, so once you come to belief, you have to let go of that and then come to deeper understanding. This is Gnosticism. And, by the way, Elaine Pagels is a modern-day proponent of Gnosticism. You know, if that's what you're left with. If you really think that the you can't, you can't trust Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to give you an accurate picture of what Jesus said and taught and what as a real embodiment of his teaching... Then uh, and you instead believe in the Gospel of Thomas, then you believe that you're getting a secret initiation information that is not ready for prime time. And and the actual message of Jesus is you got to let go of that belief stuff. You got to go deeper with this new knowledge. <clears throat> Let's hear more of Elaine Pagels. It's very interesting when you start to compare them in detail. Now, she's comparing uh, the Gospel of Thomas and and the Gospel of John. Because the Gospel of Thomas will have Jesus say, uh, you too are from the light. You too come from that from that source in God originally. Right. Yeah, that's what the Gospel of Thomas says. Now, watch this. She's actually going to correctly tell you what the Gospel of John says. The Gospel of John, by contrast, has Jesus say, um, I come from above, you come from below. I am not of this world, you are from this world. You know, and he goes on to say in chapter 8, I am the light of the world. If you fo- Whoever follows me will not die in sins. But if you do not follow me, you will die in your sins. Yeah, that's from uh, John chapter 8. I quoted that yesterday. And Elaine Pagels is here correctly quoting the Gospel of John. What do we do with this, Elaine? And that whole idea in the Gospel of John, so familiar to Christians that, you know, you're going to die in sin if you don't believe in Jesus, is completely absent from this text. Yeah, completely absent from the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas. Uh, There's a reason for that, Elaine, and that is because that uh, the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas was teaching Gnosticism, not Christianity. And so, pick one. And uh, I'm going to tell you this, if you pick Gnosticism, uh, you will die in your sins, and you will go to hell. Boy, that's unloving, isn't it? <clears throat> Let's hear what she has to say about the other Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't suggest that Jesus was actually a divine person. That's a lie. <laughs> oh, no, that's a lie. Let's hear this one again. Here we go. This is Elaine Pagels. Listen to what she said. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't suggest that Jesus was actually a divine person. Hog wash. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not actually suggest that Jesus was a divine person. That is a load of malarkey. Let me give you a great passage just from the Gospel of Mark. Mark, the action gospel. Uh, uh, When you're reading through the Gospel of Mark, Mark's a good gospel to read to your younger kids because it's action-packed. And and, and the the big word that always occurs in the Gospel of Mark is immediately, and immediately, and immediately. So... So we read this interesting story. Here we go. Mark chapter 2. And when he returned, that's Jesus. uh, When Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no no more room, and uh, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Stop there for a second. 
get the, what's going on here. Jesus is at, I think he's at Peter's house, right? Crowd gathers, crowd is so large, you know, nobody can even get into the house. Jesus is teaching, and they dig a hole in the roof, and they lower a paralytic through the roof. Um, you would expect that Jesus, you know, being a healer, is going to say to the man, get up and walk, right? Instead, Jesus does something very interesting. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Now, understand this. In the crowd that day, there just happened to be some scribes and Pharisees and teachers of the law. And this particular saying on Jesus' part, son, your sins are forgiven, is going to make them throw a red flag. In their minds, they're going, what? Okay, because put yourself into uh, the shoes here. This is in a Jewish context. How do you get your sins forgiven in a Jewish context in the first century? Oh, yeah, you take a ram, a lamb, a goat, a, a sacrifice, and you go to the temple and you have the priest slit its throat, bleed its blood out, roast it over the... You see, taking care of sins was a very bloody and inconvenient affair. Jesus, without the aid of goats and sheep and sacrifices, skips right over to the absolution and says to the guy, Son, your sins are forgiven. Verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, there's the question. Who can forgive sins except for God? Well, um, when you think about it, the answer to the question is, well, no one except for God can forgive sins. Then it says this. And immediately, there's that word, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were thus questioning within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Well, I guess it would be easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no way to actually prove that they have been or not, right? But to actually say to a paralytic, get up and walk, well, that'd be, you could say it, but you'd look foolish. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Who can forgive sins except for God alone? Jesus says, Right. No one can except for God, and so that you can know who I am, pick up your mat and walk. So the guy had his, was was healed from his paralysis, and he had his sins forgiven. And yet Elaine Pangles says that, uh, let's, let's hear that quote again, here we go. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't suggest that Jesus was actually a divine person. Hmm, you know, I got another problem with that. There's another, by the way, we're going into extra innings. Yeah, well, Jesus is, you know, see, that's the point about liberalism. They really reduce Jesus down to this, like, Jewish Boy Scout who helps little old ladies cross the Sea of Galilee. Hmm. All right. Let's see if I can find this. Uh, Let's see. 
worship. I'm looking in my computer Bible in the Gospels for the word worship. And here we go. There's a particular section of verses I would like to read. Check this out. Matthew chapter 4. This is from the Gospel of Matthew. Um, Remember Satan tempting Jesus? By the way, we're going into extra innings today. Just had to let you know. Remember when Jesus was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, right? He's being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And um, Satan says that he's going to give him all the kingdoms of the earth if he will only just bow down and worship him. Jesus says to them... um, Jesus said, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The scripture is very clear that when it comes to worship, there is only one one being that we are to worship, and that being is God. Did you know that Jesus accepted worship from people? Did you know that? And he does it not in the Gospel of John, per se, but he does it in other places, like the Gospel of Matthew. Let me give you just one example. Matthew chapter 14. Lovely, lovely, lovely. Okay. Starting in verse 22, uh, we read this little boat story. And this should frighten me because I have a kayak now. Okay. It says, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him onto the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, so the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, but the disciples saw him walking on the sea, and they were terrified and said, It's a ghost, and they cried out. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, O you of little faith, why do you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped Jesus, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. They worshipped Jesus. But the scriptures say, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus forgives sins, and Jesus accepts worship from men. I think that I think that qualifies as Matthew, Mark, and Luke teaching that Jesus was divine, don't you? Maybe I'm just being ornery. We continue. Although we usually read them as if they did say that. I think the reason people usually read them as if they said that is that they read them through the lens of the Gospel of John, which basically says that Jesus is God in person. And that's very radical. That's one thing I learned in this study, is that that message about Jesus being God in person is quite particular to the Gospel of John. And it's written... No, it's not. It really is not. And it's found even in the epistles very clearly that Jesus is God. As a sort of counter to the teaching of Thomas that in fact, well, yes, Jesus is the Son of God, but you too are also the child of God. Boy, where have we heard that before? Jesus is the Son of God, but yes, so are you. So are you. Elaine Pagels isn't teaching Christianity. She's denying the unique deity of Christ. Somehow is teaching the Gnostic concept of a divine spark. 
And uh, what she's teaching doesn't jive with the scriptures at all. In fact, um, this is just deadly stuff. And it's wrong. It's not scholarly. There's no real good scholarship to back this up. The evidence is stacked against them because it's not true. And so, uh, Reverend Curry, um, you know, we got a problem here. You're saying there's many paths to God, yet Scripture clearly teaches that there is only one God. You're teaching that the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas was written early in the first century. It wasn't. There's no evidence to support that whatsoever. You're saying that, the, that John was written in the second century. Nope, the evidence doesn't support that either. We have good testimony, good attestation from the people who lived back then that the Gospel of John was written by John himself while he was at Ephesus. Middle of the first century. And the Gospel of John teaches Christ's divine, unique, divine essence, that he is God in human flesh. And yet your gal, Elaine Pagels, is denying that and prefers what the Gospel of Thomas teaches. You're not teaching Christianity, Reverend Curry. You're teaching something else. But, you know, because I'm I'm such an unscholarly guy, and I don't know what I'm talking about, and, you know, I'm so juvenile, as you said in your nastygram, I, you know, I'd like to give you the opportunity to uh, to clear things up here. And uh, here's how I'm going to do it. Um, uh, I'll, I, I'll offer to publicly debate you on this topic, whether or not there are many paths to God and whether or not, it's kind of as a subset of it, if the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas is canonical. And uh, tell you what, you know, uh, you pick the place. I'll come up to Portland. You can come down here to Southern California. We'll get a moderator, and let's have a full-length public debate on this issue. Because I'm sure that since I'm so unscholarly, that it, you'll be really, you'll easily vanquish this evangelical. Because you know, the word evangelical is a four-letter term, four-letter word. The way you use it, because you know, I'm just somewhere, you know, south of being a redneck hick, you know, who's just about falling off the turnip truck. So, uh, Reverend Curry, if you'd like to respond to this, uh, again, I'll debate you in public on this one. Formal debate. Let's see how that stands up. Anyway, uh, we're at the tail end of our program now. You know, <clears throat> throw down the gauntlet. But, of course, I'm not very scholarly. Um, if the Reverend Curry would like to debate me, he's welcome to. And if you would like to sound off on this topic and let me know how the Gospel of Thomas has enlightened you spiritually and how you've found that you have a divine spark within you and that these secret teachings of Jesus are really what it's all about and that Christianity's been wrong the entire time, the stuff that we've been getting through the Gospels, that's the stuff we need to get rid of and to embrace these secret teachings. Uh, you can do so by uh, emailing me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Until tomorrow, may God bless you. We'll talk to you then. Mm-hmm.